Hello and welcome to another episode of Transforming Care and Clinical Support, our podcast series from Home Group. I'm Dr Nick and today I am so very pleased to have two special guests. I'm speaking to Sir Norman Lamb, former Minister of State for Care and Support, and Sean Duggan, the Chief Executive of the Mental Health Network. We're going to have a candid chat about the care system, its challenges and key learnings over recent years. During this podcast, we will talk about the Transforming Care Programme. The Transforming Care Programme was set up to help those people with very complex needs. The needs include having an intellectual disability and or autism. They may also have mental health issues as well as complex behaviours of distress. And together, all of those needs mean that we have to work extra hard to prevent these individuals from being stuck in a hospital or acute setting and to live better lives in the community. We will also discuss Winterbourne View, a scandal that rocked the nation over 10 years ago and was unearthed by the BBC in a panorama documentary where people from the Transforming Care cohort living in a care home were seen being abused and traumatised. That's why the discussion continues to be so important because we do have a significant number of individuals still living in care homes and acute hospital settings and the need to have them living in a community setting, living their best life, remains strong. Now, gentlemen, we are going to have a bit of a chat around transforming care and the transforming care programme and some of its achievements over the past 10 years and some of the challenges that we continue to face. So I guess I'll start off with an opening question around, it's been over 10 years now since the Winterbourne View, the BBC broke the story and then we had the subsequent report. We'll start with the successes. What what successes do you think we can celebrate since then? What achievements have you both seen in your respective fields that, you know, we can be proud of? I'll start with you, Sir Norman, if that's all right. There's no doubt that there are many people who were in institutions, in hospital, who are now living independent lives in the community as a result of the Transforming Care programme. And for those people, I guess it's a great success. The problem is that there should have been far more people who would have experienced that literal, as it says on the can, transforming of their care. And the fact that it has fallen short of what was expected of it and and what was in a way promised at the start is a source of great frustration for me. Um, So, you know, uh, limited success for a significant number of people whose lives have been transformed as a result of it, but far too many people still stuck in institutions. I agree with Norman. You know, we had had targets set to achieving transforming care, to provide local community accommodation, suitable accommodation for these people that we're we're considering to come out of the large institutions. Two times, certainly, those targets have not been met. Um, We've got another target now that we need to make sure we don't miss again. So... um, you know there there have been issues on the on the on the achievement side as Norman says we've clearly got some individuals scale is not big enough but who have successfully gone into local accommodation and I, you know I, I see great partnership models with the NHS voluntary sector housing associations working together to provide 
relevant, appropriate services that meet the needs of the individual and, and their family. So it does work. It can happen. And, it, and we just need to scale that up. I mean, actually, it's Norman that really started in improving the profile of mental health and disabilities when he was uh, minister. Uh, and, and that's we've managed to attain that, keep that going. And the benefits in some ways is that learning disabilities and autism also has had the better profile. Um, and I think the last thing I'd say in terms of an achievement, we've got a new, a new change at the top in NHS England. Um, a former chief executive um, running mental health services and disabilities, Tom Carhill. There's a real opportunity there and talking to Tom, you know, I, he's got the right sort of model for this. It is about leadership, not just at the NHS England. New leadership we've now got with integrated care systems, but perhaps more about that later. I very much agree with you, Sean, on, on that. I think Tom Cahill is a very good appointment and I have more confidence now that there will be that national drive because, you know, from my experience as a minister, you, you need all parts of the system, you know, committing to change, but you do need someone nationally sort of, you know, setting in a way the moral challenge that others, you know, need to meet. And I think that Tom Cahill understands what's needed to uh, make the change in people's life opportunities. And I think, you know, we're in a better position now to take advantage of that leadership than we were perhaps before. So we're in a strong place to achieve those reset targets. I don't know, I'm I'm sure you'll have both read the updated CQC report. I just was having a read of all of the documents in the last 10 years and they're the same themes, aren't they? Time and time again that we we've kind of gotten stuck on and you know, as a system in its entirety, not being able to overcome. So Tom's clearly got the, the challenge set out before him. One of the things that I've we've experienced actually as a provider trying to support these people in the transforming care cohort is a conflict around risk, appetite and tolerance. And that seems to sit within statutory services and their clinicians do you have any thoughts on that? And how do you think we could approach that? Tom and NHS England could approach that and try and, I suppose, loosen up some of the restrictions in a healthy way so that we move to a positive risk-taking approach? Because without that, we can't actually get the right people out, can we? Well, I, I think that that same attitude to risk uh, also afflicts the mental health system as well as the system supporting people with a learning disability or autistic people, there's this sense that if we discharge this person, uh, there may be a risk to themselves or to others, therefore we must not do it. Um, and so you end up in a situation where, quite frankly, we trample over people's human rights in a wholly unacceptable way. I think it would be uh, subject to legal challenge, I have to say, in, in, if you've got the right sort of case, I speak as an ex-lawyer as well as an ex-politician, uh, but if you've got the right sort of case, I think there would be a, a an arguable uh, case to make that many of these people do not have their human rights respected by locking them up and keeping them locked up, often for many years. Uh, and I think, you know, it amounts to a, an ongoing scandal uh, that this happens. And actually, if you think about this judgment about risk, actually what you're doing by uh, keeping them 
locked up for a bit longer is all you're doing is delaying risk rather than uh, in some way avoiding it. Because at the, you know, at the point that you finally do discharge them, those risks will still be there. They may even be greater because in, in many respects, people become, the longer they stay in an institution, self-evidently, the more at risk they are of institutionalization and the more hard they will find it to affect the transition back to the sort of life that the rest of us take for granted. Yeah, I, I think what cuts through risk, I think what can help with risk is is we all need to be focused on the person. This person-centred approach, I think, comes out in the CQC uh, report. Nice to talk about that. We all, we all understand the importance of that. And um, people with learning disabilities autism and their families tell us all the time. That's what we should focus on. And if you do focus on that, you focus on hopes and aspirations of the individual, hopes and aspirations of the family. It's not focusing on what they can't do and what the, you know, all, all of the risks and what can get in the way. It's what can happen, what can be achieved. And I think if we do that, it, it helps a little bit with the risk. But, you know, there's no doubt that there are risks... Um, and, and clinical risks that can get in the way of progress. We've had this with forensic psychiatry for many years. We've managed to get through a lot of that with setting up provider collaboratives. So, and that might be, you know, in some ways that might be a bit of risk sharing, but, you know, the um, number of NHS organisations getting it, uh, trusts getting together with commissioners and the voluntary sector, providing solutions. And I do think we have got a great, advantage to mitigate against the risk which is public support for what we're doing and that's really important and we need to respond to that we can't just ignore it we need to respond to it because Norman's right it's a, this has been a bit of a scandal really and uh, you know we've got to, now got to put it right so yeah that's the other aspect I think of risk that's important. It, it leads me on to think one of the big challenges around transforming care and the the people who are identified within that cohort and their families one of the big things we see as a provider is managing challenging behaviour in as much as actually these individuals have often been re-traumatised. Norman, you you highlighted that by being kept in hospital in secure settings for longer than absolutely required. Some of them have experienced, you know, we have to say it, they've experienced suboptimal care and that's probably putting it lightly. Do you think as a system we're ready, we're skilled enough in managing complex behaviour? It's one of the things we've really had to invest in and my teams have worked really hard to to develop our understanding of it because it's it's not just about mental health presentation it's not just about somebody who might be autistic it's somebody who perhaps has three different things all interplaying that results in how they express their distress what more can do you agree with what I'm saying first off you you might disagree but also what more can we do around skills development as a as a system and I love what you said about provider collaboratives actually Sean I think there's more more we can do around that sharing. Um, what we can do about it is we know that it, we can we can do, you've got you've got examples in home group whereby you've got got through this. Uh, there are a number of organisations that work with the NHS trusts social care to have provided good solutions for it. So um, one of the things we're not brilliant at in health and social care is to is to uh, disseminate what we can do well and share all the good practice models. We think we do it, but there's some blockage there because we don't scale them up properly. I mean, there's there's a lot of issues around this, you know. I mean, and, and I'm sure investment and funding would be would be an issue. The other aspect is workforce. 
on the health side of workforce, that's really put us back here. I mean, on the, on the health side, we lowered the numbers years ago for learning disabilities nurses, for example, and we're still struggling with that. The answer, in my opinion, is to make sure you get the numbers right for but it is to integrate the workforce, integrate the workforce with health, social care and the voluntary sector. And again, Home Group and others, a good example of how you can work with other organisations and, you know, not only get over the risk factor, provide good models for, for um, as, as you described it, uh, complex needs, because there are models there, and all the clinicians working together with the voluntary sector and the family, it can be done. So, so that's it. But I do think we've got a, a, a particular challenge with the workforce going forward, because it isn't just health struggling with the workforce. You are too in the world of housing and in the voluntary sector. I, mean, I agree with everything, incidentally, that Sean has just said. But I'd say that I think often we have to understand behaviour as a means of communication, you know, particularly with people who may be nonverbal. Uh, way they behave may be the only way in which they can communicate pain or uh, frustration uh, or sometimes anger. And I think also it's important to understand that behaviour can often be a, a function of the environment in which uh, people find themselves. So I think if any of us were confined to a small room that is akin to a prison cell, it may sometimes result in us behaving badly uh, or in a challenging way. Many people still face that existence without having any means of uh, expressing their frustration uh, with that. And I always remember a case of a young woman, uh, she was 15 at the time, called Fawzia. Her case was in the public domain and uh, the family is fine about me talking about her case. But I went to visit Fawzia at St Andrew's Hospital in uh, Northampton. And this was a, uh, a plain bare room uh, that she was um, kept in. That was her uh, bedroom. And it was a a bench sort of uh, bed fixed to the wall and a, a small exercise yard. That was the life she led as a 15 year old. And she was constantly restrained because of her challenging behavior. And when we finally managed to get her out of there, she went to live in a place called Alderwood in uh, Northampton, which was a very impressive place and I went to visit her two years later and when I met her I couldn't believe the person I was seeing she was literally as the as it says on the can transformed and you know she was enjoying life outside the whole time riding horses and uh, generally having a, a good life when I asked them about how often they had to restrain her uh, they said, we've never restrained her since the day she was discharged. And th I found that really compelling. And I asked them what the secret was to how they, you know, managed uh, Fawzia's needs and built a relationship. And they said that it was about training staff in understanding how autism affected that individual, not generic uh, you know, traits of autism, but that particular individual and how to support her personally. And um, by doing that, um, that personal care 
and support, um, her life was transformed. And uh, still complex needs, but completely different uh, to being contained almost like an animal uh, in, a, in a locked cell. I know this is audio, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm clapping my hands because that, that is such a powerful uh, story with, uh, you know, a happy outcome. And um, these stories are really important. I, I was hearing this morning a few people talking about integrated care systems and this integrated care system somewhere have, have introduced uh, service user patient stories. That's the one that we need you need to hear uh, to give us all real hope, you know, and, and uh, dedication to get this to get transforming care completed. And Sean, sometimes it requires a bit of a leap of faith to give someone the opportunity because it's, you know, looking at someone's behaviour in an institution, it's easy to conclude this person is not capable of living an independent, a more independent life. So their chance is dismissed. Uh, Actually, giving that person the opportunity to demonstrate that they may be perfectly capable of living a, an independent life with support. Uh, that leap of faith to give them the chance is what you need. And, you know, I've met people who have been living good lives, um, getting engaged with local voluntary groups, with their local church, all sorts of things, having lived in institutions for years. Uh, and once they are removed from that um, fraught setting where, you know, if you're autistic and you experience anxiety, to be locked up in a restricted space is about the worst possible thing you could do for someone. Release them from that stressed environment and then the person potentially starts to thrive. It's also hard. It's also tough for for staff. I'm a mental health nurse by background, a long, long way back. I used to work in institutions and then work in the community. And I'll tell you now, it's pretty obvious where I preferred. I preferred, much preferred the community, small residential settings. Everybody was behind, you know, small steps to get people settled into the community. But so wherever you are, we have as as leaders, we have a responsibility to help staff because wherever you are, it's it's a tough area. And um, uh, the the better we can uh, look after staff and and, and be serious about their mental health well-being, the better it is, obviously, for the, the service user in the end. So looking after staff is an important aspect as well. But we also know, incidentally, that once someone is in a community setting where they're comfortable and relaxed, um, it's then often possible, not always, but often possible to reduce the ratio of staff to uh, the individual, uh, which gives the individual more freedom. Uh, And of course, the cost comes down Um, and you do it, you know, cautiously and over time. But that in a way is a demonstration of how getting someone into a less stressed environment, giving them the chance of a good life actually reduces their need for continual and and intensive support. Mm. And there's a big role, isn't there, to play for families in this, because one of the things that I find upsetting in social media, you know, I follow a lot of different people on Twitter and you see a lot of personal stories on Twitter of of people out of desperation trying to raise the profile of their loved one's case. 
And there's this general sense that I feel that families don't feel involved or listened to. Where, why do we go wrong with that? Because when, when we're talking, you know, there is this overwhelming sense of wanting to do the right thing, genuinely engaging with families and, and the service user. How, where's it going wrong? Well, well firstly, it, it, does, it does go wrong. I think, we're, I think we're better at it now. I mean, I, going back a few years when we had a few... Um, high-profile cases uh, that went horribly wrong. I recall chairing a couple of conferences where we had families that came in that spent years after when when something went wrong and, you know, sadly their their, their loved one died in an institution. And uh, when when they unpicked it all, it, it, it was simply that the organisations didn't t- uh, get involved with the families, didn't talk to the families, bring them, get, get them involved in care planning, engage them. It was simply that. Actually, they got defensive and pushed the families away. Wrong thing to do, completely the wrong thing to do. And I think we've gone... I mean, there are cases where it still can happen. Um, so it, so, so it does go wrong. I think we just absolutely... We can't tolerate that, you know. And, and it's... It, 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 I wouldn't see it from a punitive point of view. I wouldn't, you know, the regulators will, will pick it up where it happens. But, you know, the, the benefits of involving the family, particularly with this client group, is incredible, you know. And so maybe we need to articulate that more, the benefits of involving the family, because with the family's support for the aspirations and hope for the individual, um, and then if commissioners and providers work out a way of doing it, that's when it works. And we've seen it work. We just need to make sure it works to scale. Yeah, I always remember when I asked to meet with the parents and uh, other family members of people who'd been in Winterbourne View uh, when I was minister, and I remember meeting uh, with a man called Steve Sollers, uh, whose um, adult son was a, a patient at Winterbourne View. And I can remember Steve telling me that uh, he had contacted both the local NHS and the local authority and had got no response to the concerns that he was raising. And I remember him saying to me, I felt guilty. How have we allowed this cruel and you know bureaucratic system to develop where a parent felt guilty through no fault of their own at all for the fate of their of their son i i was really shocked by that and uh, i you know i made it my purpose when i was minister to meet with families and i took up a number of cases not just forzia where i actually specifically in on a personal basis pursued the primary care trust as it was in those days uh, the local authority uh, and got them into the department of health and took them through the case and what needed to happen because i just wanted to demonstrate that you know you could work your way through a problem uh, if there was someone actually driving it trouble is the minister with the best will in the world can't take on every case uh, and so I really strongly believe that we've got to give families a stronger voice. We actually published a green paper. Um, this is like a discussion document in government in 2015, I think it was, which was uh, all about how we shift the power away from institutions to individuals and to their families. Um, sadly, none of that's been implemented, you know, seven years on. But the need remains for us to empower those, both the individual themselves, but also their family, 
to challenge the system. I'm a great believer, incidentally, in the use of personal health budgets and combined health and care budgets so that the family and the individual has say over how that money is spent rather than an institution deciding it for them. Yeah, and I think, again, as, as leaders, um, we, have a, we have a responsibility when we're running organisations. Well, how do you promote engagement of service users and carers? Well, one way is you think of the governance. You know, Do you have service users and carers' voice at board level, at the top level? Now, and the mental health network, we have one carer, two service users. And I wouldn't dream of doing it any other way because, you know, for all the best will in the world, sometimes, you, you know, you just don't... You, you know, you forget that you forget the really important voice of a carer, the family members. So the way to do that is to have them have a voice and engage that voice. Yeah. Well, as time seems to be evaporating, I'm going to move us to future. What hopes do you have? What would you both like to see happening specifically around this particular customer group, patient group person? What do we want to see happening in the next five years Logistics aside, what hopes do we have? Well, my hope is that the process of deinstitutionalizing care, getting people out of institutions and giving them the chance of a good life, has to be completed. I'm not wholly confident that we will succeed, but that's what should happen. Uh, there are lots of impediments uh, in the way. There's lots of vested interests If you think about all those institutions where people are kept in beds, many of those benefit financially as a result of the person staying in that bed. So when we commission care, we need to think about how we can change the incentives to uh, incentivise providers to get people home again uh, as quickly as possible, rather than thinking that the only way of building up their income is to keep people occupying uh, beds. We need to also ensure that we find ways of pooling money between local authorities and the NHS so that local authorities don't just see it as them taking on an enormous financial burden. The more we can see this as the joint responsibilities of local authorities and health, the more I think we'll be able to seamlessly shift people out of institutions and giving them the chance of a more independent life. Fabulous. That would be a lovely future to look forward to, Sean. <laughs> Anything to- <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I think what so all, all, all that Norman says, and uh, I think um, the reason why I sort of encouraged, and we were saying right at the beginning, a new leadership at NHS England, is Tom was talking about names, individuals' names, not numbers. You know, we've talked a lot about numbers and targets and how we've missed a target by 30%. Of the, only, the way we'll get this done is is for local areas to know the names. It's population health. It's This is the stuff of integrated care systems. You know, know your population. Know the names of people that need to be, have that transforming care. And I, I that, that meant, meant a lot to me because, you know, we, when, we have, when we have names and we have families, real families together and the stories that Norman talks about, then I think we'll have a chat and everybody will hopefully rally around to get, to, to get it sorted out. I do think that the integrated care systems, I mean, for me, achievement, and it will be in five years' time if integrated care systems and integrated partnerships, you know, the more local uh, areas, um, they've, t- they've got this. They, they, it's, uh, it's a priority to complete the process of transforming care and they're in charge, they've got it in their 
their um, action plans for every year to make sure it happens. I think that will be that will help us achieve it. And then finally, I think um, just a, a, a comment on staff really that, that it's, it's so they're so important for us. We won't get any any of this done without staff, social care, health, voluntary sector housing associations like yourselves, um, all, all working together. And I, we asked a few service users with learning disabilities and autism about what they, what they want most from staff. And they said compassion. We just want compassion at staff. And one of the comments was, which I'll leave you with, which was, uh, we want people to bring their hearts to work. And I just thought that was fun. that was a lovely thing to say. It was a good thing to say. And again, being a nurse, I know what that's meant, what is meant by that. And that's the sort of staff we're looking for. But in order to get that, we need to train them, develop them, supervise properly and look after them. Yeah, very much agree with that. One of the things that I was wondering about with the integrated care systems and how do we ensure that all stakeholders get a genuine seat at the table? Because if you think about what it's going to take to create that that vision that we've discussed we do need housing providers don't we we do need some of the independent provision that's out there in the the social care sector to really drive the integration you've both articulated what what can we do I'm you know I'm one of those people how do we get a seat at the table how do we join the conversation to help move things forward well I I first of all agree with Sean that the in the, the emergence of these new integrated care systems, this is the new way in which the NHS is organised for those who ha- haven't been following every, uh, ev- every step along the way. Um, I do think this gives us an opportunity to um, work differently and, and to have better collaboration, both within the NHS, but also with, between the NHS and local authorities, and also critically, third sector including within housing and within education and other uh, relevant sort of providers. I think the way the government envisages uh, how uh, ICSs will work is to devolve quite a lot of their sort of powers and responsibilities to what they call to the place level. Now, in the London context, where I uh, chair a, a mental health trust, the South of London and Maudsley, the place level is the, the borough, the London borough. What's envisaged is at the borough level, close collaboration between NHS bodies, the local authority and third sector. And that's where housing, employment and other relevant uh, stakeholders can really be partners in a more coherent approach. And you're absolutely right. In so many of the what we call the social determinants of health, the, the things that make us ill or that affect our well-being lie completely outside the NHS. It's the quality of our housing. It's, the, uh, it's, the, it's whether we're in employment, whether we get dignity from our employment, the, the strength of our relationships with others, the environment that we live in. All of these things are critical to, our, to the population's health. And unless we start to engage with those other organisations that have a role in, uh, in, in those services, unless we do that, then we will fail. Uh, and I think there is this chance with the new uh, integrated care systems and devolving power to a more local level, uh, we have a real opportunity to work collaboratively with others to improve people's experiences. It's not going to be easy. 
it's not easy for organisations like yourself because it take it takes capacity. You know, you you've got a business to run and you're looking after people, along with all the housing that you do. Um, it's it's a complex world out there now. We've got the integrated care systems. You know, in, there are two parts to it: the boards, and then there's Norman says place and partnerships, and then you've got primary care networks. This is the new world, and that's you know that's that's health and social care to a degree, but. There's a lot of partnership working and, and in order for you to get a, a voice, you'll need to have a voice with some senior people there, which will require senior people from you. So just, I think as a board, your board needs to consider, you know, I'm sure you've done it, but organisations need to do it. Absolutely the third sector and housing needs to do it because we need you. We, we won't deliver on the long-term plan on trans- and transforming care without you. Um, but you do need to be at the table somehow and you do need a voice. And the only way you could do that is to identify people at senior level to be able to carry out that business. And I do think that what we're going to witness is quite variable practice around the country. I think some integrated care systems will emerge as creative, imaginative um, and willing to... Uh, um, uh, sort of exploit opportunities to collaborate with others uh, uh, to affect the health of their local population, as I've described. Uh, I think others will take a much more cautious approach, will focus just on bringing down waiting times for hospital operations and won't take advantage of the opportunities we have to uh, seek to prevent ill health in a, in a much more effective way. I wonder if one of the things we can do is the th- in the third sector, I think unification's key. And I know that as we look towards the future, a bit like what you, you'd stated earlier, Sean, we really want to unify in the third sector around our knowledge, our learning, our skills come together. And then I think the voice will be amplified. Um, and everything you've both said today strengthens certainly mine and home groups resolve to continue to raise the profile for our customers, specifically in this area where they are the most vulnerable. And it gives me hope that, you know, I think things will improve over the next five years. There's clearly opportunity to do so. And your voice, Nicola, in home group and other similar organisations is going to be completely critical because in a way, you can provide the compelling evidence that a different way is possible, that it doesn't have to be institutional care, that people can lead good lives with the right uh, level of support. And, uh, you know, it's vital that your voice is heard. You need stamina. You need patience. Oh, we've it, got, we've got o- o- oodles of that. Tenacity is, you know, one of our, our favourite words here at Home Group. But I've, I've just got to say, I am so, so grateful that you both I know how busy and important you are. And you took the time to talk to me today about a topic that's so important. And I'm very, very appreciative. And hopefully, they'll, you know, we've got more opportunities for anyone who's listening to us. You know, this is not the end of the discussion. Home group, we are going to continue to try and push this agenda and lend all of our efforts to helping those people that are still in hospital. So any final thoughts from you guys? Well, I just think there's a, there's, there is a moral cause here. You know, at the moment, there are too many people who are still treated in effect as second class citizens who don't have the same rights as others enjoy and take for granted. And we have to end that injustice. And 
I think we have to see it as an injustice and something that is not to be tolerated in a modern civilized society. And if someone is capable of living a good life in the community with support, it is wrong for them to be kept locked up in an institution, full stop, and it should be seen as wholly unacceptable for the uh, for, for the NHS and others to sustain that. Yeah, great, and, and a, a really a real genuine thank you to Home Group and your staff for working in this area and uh, doing your bit to achieve the transforming care. It's it, it's, it's very rewarding work, but it can be very tough as well, I know. And it's just thank you. because And during the pandemic in particular, it's put more pressure on you all. Absolutely. They, they've done a phenomenal job. Everybody working at the front line, it's just, they're just hugely important. And hopefully we can continue to invest in our front line workers and let everyone see what a, a brilliant career choice it is. Absolutely. How rewarding. If you can have a positive impact on someone's life, um, that's something to feel good about when you go home in the evening. Certainly. Well, thanks so much to both of my special guests for joining me today. And I do hope that we can do it again soon. Thanks very much indeed, Nicola. Yeah, thank you, Nicola. It's great to be here. Next time on Transforming Care and Clinical Support, we have another brilliant guest, Professor Chrissy Rogers. She'll talk to us about her work with adults with intellectual disabilities and learning disabilities. Can't wait to hear what Chrissy's got to say. 